Well, there's just really one final question I have for you, uh, unless there's something else that you think that you want to add. And this isn't, uh, as far as I know, directly related to the history of the Legion of Honor that we've been tracing. It has much more to do with um, your activities right after World War II, when you were involved with the recovery of uh, works of art. Well, that was a wonderful time. I was always, I always thought that was a, too bad. It had to be a thing like a world, world war to get me into the salt mines in Europe. But uh, since it had to be, I was very glad I was around. Well, you see, that was an interesting operation. They, they formed a thing called the Roberts Commission in Washington, where it was planned to call on people in the museum profession, architects as well, uh, from all, uh, in all branches of the service, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, or Air Force. And I happened to be in the Navy, and I happened to have, also, when, when a person was, was selected by the members of the Robert Commission in Washington to be assigned to work in the European area, uh, the, uh, the person who was chosen it was up to him to get his release from his particular command. Now, at this time in the 40s, uh, Perry Rathbone, who later was director of the Boston Museum, this time he was uh, still in St. Louis, I think. He was out there in the South Pacific, and so I believe was Henry McElhenney, the well-known collector from Philadelphia, and their commanding officer wouldn't release them for this service. I, in turn, was stationed here in San Francisco, and I had a... Rough per duty, rough duty. Huh? I say rough duty, being stationed in San Francisco. Wasn't that tough? <laughs> oh, what was rough about it? Here I was an over-age character going into the Navy anyway, and uh, I, uh, I got sent, up, uh, sent to Tucson, Arizona for my two-month basic training. Let me tell you, I lost 10 pounds and never ate like a horse before in my life. <laughs> I came back healthier from that two months than I ever thought it was possible to be at the age of, what was I, 30, 39. But I was lucky enough to, to have a marvelously sympathetic commanding officer, commander of the Western Sea Frontier, named Admiral Ingersoll. Bless his heart, he just died the other day, and uh, age of something like 95. And uh, he said, you want to get into this work, how? And I said, uh, yes, sir, I do very much. But I said, uh, I did not uh, join the Navy with the idea of getting an assignment that was an extension of my peacetime duty. But I said, the idea of getting over there at this work excites me very much. Well, he said, I think it's a good idea for people who've got some special bet. If they can use it in the war effort, fine. So he promoted my, uh, yeah, I did my going. It was perfectly marvelous. And I'll just tell you a little story that has nothing to do with fine arts. But if, I, if my daughter, who was then about five years old, I think, uh, if, um, if she had been just a little older, God, and married to a naval officer, her husband would have been an admiral in no time at all because she said she was very conscious of gold braid from a very tender age. And she said to me, when I, she knew I was going to go to Germany, she said, Daddy, could I meet Admiral Ingersoll? And I said, 
Well, I don't, I don't know whether you can or not. I said, you know, I only work down there at Western Sea Frontier Headquarters. And I said, there is a war going on. But I said, let me see. So I said, the day before I was leaving, I said, Admiral Ingersoll, would it be a terrible intrusion on your routine if, uh, if my daughter came down tomorrow and I had my come in to say goodbye? I said, she uh, very much wants to, to meet my boss. Well, he was so cute about it, he was grandpa himself then, and, and he said, uh, I'd be delighted. So the next morning I took my daughter down and uh, took her into his office and I said, Admiral Ingersoll, this is my daughter Francesca. And she very perfectly dropped a little curtsy. But what fooled her was he dropped a curtsy back. And the next minute she was on his lap and well it was one of, it was one of the most whimsical and crazy little experiences. <laughs> I got over I said to my wife, Well, honey, this girl ought to get a naval man for a husband because he'd go right up right to the top. <laughs> right to the top. But no, that I'll tell you. I went over there with Craig Smythe. We flew over from from Patuxent outside Washington, and uh, we were uh, briefed in in Paris and given lots of unpleasant you know, shots like yellow fever and I don't know what else. And then, for some reason or other, we were sent over to London for further briefing there. And at that time, I remember we took a good deal of ribbing from some of the people in the foreign service there and the in the uh, restitution activities there, saying, uh, "Oh, because we Craig and I had flown over on a plane, which uh, which uh, Lindbergh was also a passenger. Mm. He went over with the simulated rank of brigadier general, you know, one of those uh, non-descript uniforms that didn't have any insignia, but you found out pretty quickly what rank they had." And he piloted the plane part of the way across. And Craig and I thought that was kind of entertaining. It was an unattractive kind of bomber-type plane. We flew all the way around through the Azores and took us for hours and hours to get to Paris. And so when we were in London, we were, one of our good yarns was that one of our pilots coming across had been Lindbergh. And I remember old Sir Montague, what was his name, Montague Woolley. He had a miserable, mean uh, archaeologist wife who was no? she was so mean, she was known as Dame Cat. And I remember she smiled, a big toothy smile at Craig and me, when we said that we'd been on the plane with Lindbergh, and said, well, tell me, is he still a Nazi? Yeah. And of course, you remember in the days when Lindbergh had been so impressed by the force, mm -hmm. the Air Force of Germany, that he was troubled about our prospect. Well, we soon got sent into Germany. Craig. Uh, was immediately sent down to Munich, and I was stuck in Frankfurt because the Berlin pictures had just been brought from the America's mind under the direction of George Stout, you know, who's later at Fenway Court. Uh, George had, uh, had supervised the packing and sending of the pictures to the Reichsbank in, in Frankfurt, where they were stored in the vaults, and then we had to get them transferred over to a more spacious and suitable uh, warehouse. And we chose the provincial museum, the municipal museum over in Wiesbaden, about 20 miles from Frankfurt. And that was a big beehive of activity. It was a, a clearing house, a collecting point where things were processed and distributed to 
to uh, the countries from which these things had been looted. And we had, for example, all the regalia of the Holy Roman Empire there. Yeah. And on a Sunday afternoon, we'd have a lot of fun. We, we had all the Prussian crown relics and Frederick the Great's things. And then there was the famous Hungarian crown of St. Stephen with the bent cross. And we used to try that on, and uh, we had generally a reverent time. We didn't damage these objects. So you weren't dealing just with pictures at all, but oh, everything you can think of, including I regret to say the gold fillings from the teeth of a great many people who had gone to the gas oven. Oh my God! That came. They came in in brown paper bags. And I saw Doc Howe at an early age, or early stage of the game, and that's something you would never forget. But then you see what happened was there was a there was a big pattern, all the, all the Allied people were working very happily together, even the Russians were working with a good deal of cooperative spirit, but particularly the Dutch and the French uh, and the English. Now the English zone was up in the northern part of the Rhineland and in an area where most of the things that were brought in and had been stored in public buildings there for safekeeping were museum property. The museum of the Rhineland, like the Folkwang Museum at Essen, and uh, the museum, the, the big warehouse, the big storage house in, in Marburg, was was there was no real problem of these things. They were all identified. It was American policy and Allied policy in general that a country's patrimony was not going to be invaded. That the things that came from Rhineland museums would go back to Rhineland museums. Whereas down in Bavaria, that was the real cancer of the whole situation because there was where the great bulk of all the looted properties were. Mm -hmm. And of course it was much the most fascinating part of the world to work in. That and Salzburg and particularly east of Salzburg in the Salzkammergut in, in, in the um, uh, Alsace salt mines. And we had 36 or 40 convoys that summer going from uh, uh, from uh, Salzburg, uh, rather the Salzkammergut to Baudelaire about uh, Alsace area into Munich where we disgorged the trucks and then they went back for more and we emptied these mines until the early part of September. There was a working team of George Stout and a man named Lamont Moore who was at the National Gallery as head of their educational work at one time and a wonderful little Czech fellow named Lieutenant Kovaliak who was a, who handled the prisoners of war like like dough, and he made him crack. He cracked the whip, and they do the work for us. And we had also the all the Göring collection to clear out of the out of the uh, Luftwaffe rest house, which was outside uh, Bethesgarten. Mm -hmm. So we not only worked in the most, some of the most beautiful areas of Germany, but the, the rewards were incredible because most of this stuff were the great confiscated Jewish collections, mm -hmm. like the Rothschilds. People say, oh, the back, back to the salt mines. Well, we got kind of left off in the middle of the salt mine saga. Well, this was in, uh, of course, in 45 and 46 over there. And uh, there was, as I was saying earlier, the great bulk of the looted works of art were in Bavaria and in the salt mines east of Salzburg. So the big removal was a marvelously fascinating job. Uh, we took them, sent them by convoy from from the uh, South Kammergut area into, all the way over into Munich, where they were stored. And then the representatives of the different countries from which these things had been removed illegally, in most cases, those representatives had to come 
with their own documentation to show that they had, for example, a, a scholar from a museum in Amsterdam would say, well, these two Franz Hals portraits, I've got documentation to show that they were looted from uh, such and such a Jewish collection in Rotterdam. Uh, thanks to the very intelligent foresight of a man named Bansel Lafarge, who was head of our division there for a long time, uh, a policy was accepted by General Eisenhower that the United States would make a point of returning to each country where things had been, from which things had been looted, a token restitution of real magnitude, and then after that it was to be a policy come and get it. You send your representatives to collecting points in Frankfurt or in Munich and you identify the object and then you take them away. Well, that worked extremely well and, of course, the, the token restitutions were rather distinguished. In the case of Belgium, it was the Van Eyck order piece, again, the adoration of the, of the lamb. And in the case of um, what we send back to uh, to France, we chose 26 of the finest pictures that had been looted. Uh, these were virtually all from the, from various Rothschild collections. And where else did we send it to? Oh well, we sent back to Poland, but that didn't happen until a year later. The the wonderful Weitstoss altarpiece, which had been mm -hmm. taken from the Church of St. Mary in Krakow. And uh, these were very exciting days indeed. Uh, when there was all sorts of goodwill and the representatives came and lived in Munich very happily and they lived better there than they would have at home because there were, there were days of real austerity still in, in Holland particularly and uh, to a certain extent in France. And uh, the whole operation worked very smoothly. Uh, it went on all through 1945 and into 46 and into 47 and on, dragged on beyond that. And then in 1950, see, I'd been over there as a, as a uh, naval officer. In 1950, I was asked if I would return to Germany as a uh, foreign service officer. And I did, and I went back there to uh, uh, Frankfurt and my deputy in Munich, where the other activity was still very much in, in progress, was uh, Professor Lane Faison, of, uh, head of the art department at Williams. And, uh, we had a wonderful year there, uh, restituting, I think we figured something over three million objects in the course of that period. And what, when I tell you that maybe one was a collection of 10,000 coins, it makes it sound a little less heavy. <laughs> uh, the magnitude of, of the, of the uh, confiscation carried on by the Nazis was, was absolutely fantastic. And of course there were important losses, but I think in the overall picture, the final assessment was that perhaps it was fair to say that the loss, irreparable loss uh, of objects in all areas probably did not exceed 2%. In other words, if you recovered 98%, uh, it's a pretty good record. And we always, see, we, we endear ourselves to the... Uh, uh, to the uh, European countries at the time, very because we did not uh, glom on to anything for ourselves. We kept nothing in the way of, well, say, like a Napoleonic rape of right. our Europe. And uh, this was by no means a, a, a universally popular uh, philosophy. How do you mean? 
Well, the National Gallery in Washington was just nearly dying to get its claws on the Chenin Vermeer. And uh, I think part of the reason for that was that, that Hitler openly gloated over having been able to buy the Chernin Vermeer from old Count Chernin for, I don't know what he paid for, he said seven and a half million dollars, something like that. Uh, that, uh, that Andrew Mellon, the great American financier, had been unable to buy the picture for his gallery in, in Washington, but Hitler had succeeded. And of course, David Findlay and Johnny Walker, who was later the director of the gallery, I think would have felt it a very charming tribute to have the Chenin Vermeer ended up on the walls of the National Gallery. But you see, it was a, it was a curious and very difficult case to decide. The heirs of Chernin claimed that it had been a forced sale. Uh, Chernin, on the other hand, is recorded as having urged and abetted, aided, abetted Hitler, Hitler in buying the, the, the Vermeer. And uh, it's on record that he, uh, when he turned it over to him, it was with a happy Heil Hitler and so on. But then again, you see, the fact that it was a a forced sale. Therefore, that meant it was not, I mean, it was a willing sale. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the heirs could not claim it. But whose picture was it? And the decision was finally made that it should go to the uh, Kunsthistorisches Museum, the National State Museum of Vienna, of Austria. And, of course, that's fine. But you see, it led other people to think, well, hell, it belonged to Hitler. Why, doesn't it, why don't we, the conquering heroes, uh, get it for ourselves? So there's some logic in that thought, but it would have caused, of course, endless ill will if a picture of mm -hmm. that fame had, had come to this country, or gone to any country except the one which it had always been for many, many years. And But there were not too many problems of that kind. Were there any works that um, um, couldn't be... Your origins couldn't be traced. Oh yeah. yes, oh my lord! You see, there was. Uh, you see, the, the solution to all that, I I don't quite know. For example, there were, there was a considerable corpus of pictures and objects of various kinds from uh, rather nondescript uh, Jewish collections in in Vienna. No heirs to be found. Well, what do you do with things like that? I think the ultimate decision there was that these objects were simply turned over to the country of origin. I don't mean the origin of the artist, but right. say if, if there were five or six untraceable Jewish collections in Vienna, then some art facility in, in the government in Vienna would be responsible for the ultimate disposal of that. Uh, we had all sorts of talks about that. What we do, there were, for example, there were marvelous uh, book, library books, uh, books of, of, of tremendous value that had been uh, put together by that Einsatz Star Rosenberg, which was trying to resolve some come some conclusions about the theory of the whole development of the, the, the Jewish problem. And uh, these, many of these things were not re were not returnable, so they simply had to be turned over eventually to some responsible agency, not to an individual. Yes, 
the great Rothschild libraries in Frankfurt were very much a, a heavy problem at one time because some members of, of, of the American military government wanted to distribute these books to the prisoners of war camps. But they weren't that kind. They weren't copies of Uncle Tom's Cabin and Mark Twain, Uncle Bay Finn. These were interesting and important treatises on various scientific subjects. And once they had been released to go to a prisoner of war camp library, they would never have been recovered, I'm sure. We had a big fight about that. We, we did, when I say we, I mean our, our, our section of the government put over our point that, that, that we felt just as much compassion for the, for the poor people in the prisoner of war camps and the, and the detention camps of the displaced Jewish people at the end of the war who hadn't been properly rehabilitated and redistributed, uh, gotten to their own homeland. Uh, this wasn't going to uh, ameliorate their problem. But it was, a, it was a wonderful time to be over there. And of course, the contrast between being there in 1945 and 46, when we were the Lord's creation, and being there in, and again in 1551, when the civilian population was a very different situation, the contrast was quite extraordinary. But uh, I made many warm friends in Germany, and I. I get back as frequently as I can because I still like to keep up some of those things. Well, you were decorated, um, I, I gather, by the both the French and Dutch governments. By the French and Dutch, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, that was partly because of the things we got back to uh, France and, of course, the the other thing was the, the Dutch loan. There again, we, we couldn't pick out any particular single thing like the Ghent altar piece, so we sent, in that case, 25 or 30 absolutely top quality pictures back to home. And, uh, and they appreciated it. Well, I bet they did. <laughs> yeah, it was a wonderful time. Uh, I always loved what, when, when Hamilton Coulter, who was a naval officer commissioned to take things back to the Jeu de Pomme in Paris, these beautiful, 26 beautiful pictures, one of the most ravishing. Chardin's and one of the most beautiful Fragonards you've ever seen that came from old Baron Edmond de Rothschild. And a, a Madame Kahn, who was a curatorial type who received the shipment, took that and said, But where are the frames? <laughs> and my friend Coder said to me afterwards, I told Madame Kahn what she could do with those frames. <laughs> That's incredible. I wonder if that's apocryphal, but it makes it. No, I don't think so. No, I, because Ham Coulter was, could hardly wait to get back to Frankfurt to tell me about this. He said, God damn that. Can you imagine? I said, yes, I can imagine very well, because that's absolutely true to, to French spirit. <laughs> I wrote that up in my... My little chronicle. You, you should mention your book uh, in connection with this whole experience. Oh, well, well, I'll tell you this funny thing about the book thing. Uh, while I was over there, I had a letter from an old friend of mine who was happened to be a, uh, an agent for Bob's Merrill, publishing house in my home state of Indiana. And uh, he said, he said, Doris Chambers, who was that time publisher, uh, head of the publishing house, Ross Chambers is going to write to you. He wants to know if you'd write a book about your post-war experiences. Not anything to do with the war, but post-war. Well, I wrote back and I said, well, I couldn't write anything about wartime experiences because I wasn't over here then. It had to be post-war. 
And I said, yes, I'd, I'd take this under very happy advisement. So I got a letter from Lawrence Chambers asked me what I could do about it, and I said, well, I don't think there'd be any censorship regulations that would prevail. I'll find out about that, but in, in principle, sure, I'll be glad to try to drum up a story, a post-war diary. And I was helped in this because I, I not only kept a very careful day-by-day -day diary, but I wrote terribly long and very detailed letters uh, to my wife, and she uh, saved them all. And so it was really just a question of editing this material when I got back. Well, a funny thing happened about that. Uh, before I left Paris, I had the, uh, in the spring of 46, I had the contract signed, and it had to be witnessed. And I thought it was a good omen. I took, when I passed through Paris, I went to see an old, old friend of my family's who comes also from Indiana by the name of Janet Flanner, who used to write the, uh, the letter in the New Yorker called... Well, going on about this business of uh, signing a contract for this uh, a book of post-war experiences, uh, Janet Flanner looked over, the, looked over the contract, said, yeah, that's that usual tightwad type of contract they give to young writers, and, but said it's all right. So she co-signed it, and I thought that was a good omen. I came back home, set to work on it, and of course several other people had an idea about writing their post-war experiences, among them my distinguished colleague, Mr. James J. Rohrmer, director of the Metropolitan Museum. And um, so <laughs> later on that year, my book was published, and it came out under the somewhat gaudy title of Salt Mines and Castles. And uh, I had suggested several titles for it at the publisher's request, uh, and they didn't like any of them. And so they proposed this, which I didn't particularly like, but I was so sick and tired of the whole thing by that time that they could have called it anything as far as I was concerned. Well, the next time I was in New York, I saw my old friend Craig Smythe, you know, the one I went to Germany with, and he was then, I think, uh, either finishing his doctorate or studying at New York University. I think New York University was... He was the chairman of the department there for a long time, you know, the art department. And he said, by the way, you know you're, you're in the bad graces of Jim Rorimer. And I said, well, how so? Well, he said, you know, he is writing a book about his experiences. Oh, I said, you mean how he took tea with every duchess in Paris? Uh, and he crawled on his belly through the mud on all that junk in Paris and outside wartime. Well, he said, no, no, he said that you had plagiarized his title. That was the title he had chosen for his book. Well, I said, I've got a message from Mr. James J. Rohrman. Would you please make a point of telling him for me that I did not choose this rather vulgar title, that it was chosen by the publisher, so no plagiarism is involved. Did you ever get any feedback on that? Oh, yeah, I saw Jim Jim later, and you see, he was such a funny guy about... Uh, it was from... it was directed from him that I got the key in the city of Augsburg. He had left it there for me, to the castle at Neuschwanstein, which unlocked all of the Nazi records of where the looted works of art were. Because people said, well, how'd you know where to look? The Nazis... Uh, the Nazis... Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, 
when you make a record. They made well, they made a record. Yeah. Everything, um, microfilm and photographs, and it was just a question of finding out what areas contained what things. And you see later in that winter of forty-five and forty, winter of forty-five, and again on into forty-six, there were vast things to be removed from Neuschwanstein, and uh, we worked down there during the uh, during the winter months as well as in the summer. And it was, well, it was all it's all in retrospect so in a way so unreal because. I said, I remember writing home at the time, and I was put in charge of all the, uh, the things from, from the Berlin, the Kaiser Friedrich Museum that were in the Reichsbach in Frankfurt. I, I was responsible for them. And I said, in a sense, I'm director of the Kaiser Friedrich Museum. And you had these sort of uncanny things. For example, you'd walk into a, in, in some of the chambers at the salt mine at Alsace and see these incredible treasures. It really, it really was something. You know, the interesting thing about those mines in the Salts Kammergut, they are 10 degrees warmer in the uh, wintertime than they are in the summertime. And there's a very even temperature. It's around 65 to mm -hmm. 68 degrees humidity. And the only thing that you have to watch out there is that the armor and metal objects had to be coated with wax or they would oxidize. And also, Lamont Moore and I both, when we first worked in the mine at Alt for three weeks, we had perfectly terrible summer colds and just were lousy. They were gone in about two days in the saline atmosphere of the mine. It's, it's really quite extraordinary. And of course, it's, it's, it's like it's, taking the cure or something. Yeah, really. And it's, of course, just the, about the most beautiful country in the world, you know, all that uh, Austrian Alps. Mm -hmm. Oh, had right there in Hitler's stronghold. Too. He sure picked pretty places. Uh, at that time, you know, Ted Rousseau, who was later the curator of paintings of the Metropolitan, Ted Rousseau and Lane Faison, who later went with me to Germany in 1551, but in 45 and 46, Lane was a naval officer. He was OSS, so was Ted uh, Rousseau, and so was uh, Jim Plow, who was a member of the Sachs family, who was at that time had been director of a museum of contemporary art in Boston. And Jim, those three were a little team, and they interviewed the Nazi war, so-called Nazi war criminals, the big dealers who had been responsible for selling things to Goering and all that. And Lane wrote the definitive report on that, which is very interesting. But the, And of course it was extraordinary. Here, George Stout and Lamont Moore and I were up there on the salt mine. We lived pretty well in a nice little kind of cavern-like place. We had comfortable bedrooms and all that, but the food was just plain beans out of the can and not much more. But when we went down to House 71, which is the name of this little stronghold where, where Faison and Rousseau and uh, Plout lived, uh, oh, Rousseau looked like a jaunty uh, member of a super Nazi corps. I remember Lincoln Kirstein once said to me, aren't you glad he's on our side? And of course he did look like a terribly blasé Nazi officer. At any rate, they, they lived very well there, because I remember when Jordan Lamont and I were invited to lunch, we really felt like country cousins, because we were just kind of hard working, we sweat like horses, worked all day long. We got down here to this elegant little uh, Austrian chalet, and uh, I remember when, they were, when we were having lunch, uh, Ted uh, told the maid, it's the wrong kind of glass for the mine.
Well, hell, we hadn't even seen wine, let alone a proper <laughs> So they lived very well down there. But it was an interesting contrast, because we were, not that we were feeling sorry for ourselves, we were, we were not any long-suffering pioneers, but uh, our, our regime was a much more Spartan one mm -hmm. compared to the uh, rather elegant bureaucratic life that they were leading. That's, that's an interesting... Comment. But you know, that whole thing turned out to be a sort of a far-reaching and a, a devoted a club. Everybody who had been in that one way or another, whether they had somehow they had the differences in professional life uh, uh, in peacetime, they were all brought together by this joint activity. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, was a, it was an interesting bond. And uh, afterwards, the French government did give uh, give some of us the Legion of Honor, and uh, but the government felt they couldn't afford to pay for uh, the decorations; they were too expensive. So dear old David Bay, whose pictures and collections we had returned, bought them all and gave them to the individual officers. So our individual decorations were a, a personal gift from him. What was your unit called, or what was the group called? Did you have a special yeah, name? Sure. Besides the, the recoverers the, of our... Oh, God, the, the trick name, slang name was the Venus Fixers. The <laughs> Venus Fixers. But it was the, uh, the, the a section of, of, a section of G5, which was e economics. Mm -hmm. uh, archives and archives. Oh, God, I thought I'd forget that. Got it right here. Okay. Oh, monument... I think monuments are arts and archives. What did we call this thing? Well, they have your own book. Well, I've well, got You know, this thing I can't get anymore. You've seen this, haven't you? Seen no, it? I want to take a look. I'll lend it to you. I trust you if you want to read it. I think it's I'm kind of interesting, Kate. Special evaluation. What do we call it? Well, we were, of course, first of all, here we are. The orders directed me to report to SHAPE, that Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces, for duty with the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Section G5, and additional duty with the Allied Control Council of Germany. No wonder you can't remember it. That's, no that's a lot. What an old legion just reference. I don't know why I had these single down. Well, I think I think that about covers it for the afternoon. So well, I pretty much I thank you. The archives thanks you.